Hello and welcome to the second season of Looking Up, a Unity podcast, a podcast for women by women. I am Paramita Chatterjee and I have been with PayPal for over 12 years as an HR and talent leader and a veteran member of Unity. On this podcast, we are unpacking some of the most important issues that women face at work and beyond. I'm so lucky to be joined by my esteemed co-host, Rachel Simmons. Rachel is a New York Times bestselling author, executive coach, and a lifelong educator. And I love practical learning with humor and authenticity, and we have got all three in store for you on this podcast. I'm so excited to partner with PayPal to have these conversations and connect with women around the globe. So buckle up. We have got a lot to talk about. Well, we have a real legend with us today, and you are not going to want to miss one minute of this episode. Sally Helgeson has been cited in Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. She's an internationally best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach. She's been named by Thinkers 50 as one of the world's top 20 coaches and ranked number six among the world's thought leaders by global gurus. Her most recent book, How Women Rise, which I talk about all the time to everyone I know, was co-authored with executive coach Marshall Goldsmith, and it examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. Not surprisingly, within a week of its publication, it became a top seller in its field. Its rights have been sold in 18 languages, and I am so thrilled that we will be distributing several hundred copies to women at PayPal. Sally's previous books include The Female Advantage, Women Ways of Leadership, The Female Vision, Women's Real Power at Work, and The Web of Inclusion, a new architecture for building great organizations, which was cited in the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books on leadership of all time and is credited with bringing the language of inclusion into business. How prescient for this moment. Sally lives in Chatham, New York in the U.S. She is a neighbor of mine from where I broadcast here in Western Massachusetts. Welcome, Sally, and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rachel. It's wonderful to be with you. I'd love to begin, as we always do with our guests, with your story. Tell us a bit about your journey, how you discovered your passion for your current work. And I personally would love to know, was this always part of your plan? It was not always part of my plan at all, Rachel. I had been a journalist in the 70s. In the early mid-80s, I made a switch and I was in corporate communications, working really as an internal journalist for a number of companies. And I really enjoyed the work. It was lots of fun. But one thing I noticed, now this is, we're talking about mid-late 80s. One thing I noticed was that the organizations that I worked for, as good as they were, had absolutely no clue how to use the talents of the women that were beginning to come into them and in a very occasional instance achieve some position of authority and influence. I felt like I heard the best strategic ideas often really in the ladies' lounge So this was fascinating to me, and I thought, what can I do to make what women have to bring more visible? And I experimented with a number of things, and what I came up with 
was a book that would look at how some of the most successful women leaders did things, what their strengths were, what was distinctive about their style, because I felt that this would be of interest to organizations. So that book became The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, which uh, came out in 1990. I'm proud to say it has been continuously in print ever since. And I think the reason it became as successful as it did is it really was the first book that looked at what women had to contribute as leaders rather than how they needed to change and adapt, which everything, both popular and academic, that had been the focus up until then. So companies started asking me in to speak to women. And I want to say that this book did not change how companies led at that point in 1990, but it certainly inspired women. I would get letters that said things like, I never knew I had a leadership style. I thought it was just how I did things. I love that. So companies started asking me in and I thought, well, I can write my own speeches instead of write them for executives. (laughs) Mostly that's what I was doing with speech writing. And I made the decision to go off on my own and see if I could make this work. And uh, it's a 30 some odd years later, and it worked. It's amazing how much you've seen. Yeah, I've seen a lot. I bet. There were some very tough times. People would say, oh, get out of women's leadership. It's so 90s or it's so 80s. It's been quite a journey and it's been very global as well. Speaking of the journey and and speaking of women's style and speaking of the 1980s, I have to ask, did you wear shoulder pads? Oh, yeah. I loved shoulder pads. I always thought I had narrow shoulders, so I was thrilled with the whole shoulder pad thing. Fantastic. I'm waiting for them to come back. I know they're just on the heels of like the really high-waisted jeans and weird white sneakers that the kids are wearing right now, (laughs) which remind me only of my uh, cringeworthy middle school fashion. (laughs) So, all right, well, let's get into it. Your co-author, Marshall Goldsmith, has written about how problems change the higher up we go in our organizations. The issue, he says, is not your skill, but your behaviors. So can you describe what happens to women in particular as they become more senior in their organizations? What becomes most important for them? Yes. And, you know, it really was Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, that inspired me to ask him to collaborate on this book, which became How Women Rise. Because Marshall's insight, that insight that the habits and behaviors that are most likely to serve us early in our careers are the very ones that are most likely to trip us up in senior positions, and we remain loyal to them because they understand they got us to where we are. That was the insight that really got me excited. But in what got you here won't get you there, what I saw was that many of the habits and behaviors he looked at did not necessarily apply to women. (laughs) Learn to apologize, for one. LOL. I know, exactly. Many of the habits and behaviors that I had seen that were problematic for women were not in that book. So what tends to get in women's way, and we have 12 habits in the book, and I would suggest all of them to varying degrees are different problems for different women. Perfectionism, of course, feeling that you're either perfect or you're failing. There's no middle ground. The disease to please trying to, that's a big one that can serve you well early, but is problematic later. Wanting everyone to like you, wanting everyone to think you're a wonderful person. That makes it very difficult to delegate, to hold people to account, etc., to set boundaries. 
certainly expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions. That's a big one. Overvaluing expertise. And another really big one is putting your job before your career, pouring all that energy into the job that you have without saving some of it to think also strategically about where you want it to go. I definitely see so much of that in my own clients and in my own work. So let's zero in for a moment on the scope of these 12 habits that hold women back. I look at your book as kind of a guide for life that I will return to at different moments in my career when I see certain ones cropping up and other ones starting to die down in my own development and path. And really, each one is so on point. And I was thinking as I got ready to talk with you that since your book was published, we went into a pandemic. And many of us moved to a virtual and now a hybrid workplace. So I'm wondering in these last couple of years, which habits have come forward for you in your own work as the ones that are holding women back during this particular period? Well, I think that in this particular period, there's special pressure on women around things like reluctance to claim your achievements and that one that I mentioned earlier expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions because not being with people, not having those informal conversations puts us under more stress to formally let people know what we're contributing to a team effort, which is essential to our being identified as a strong contributor. So there are fewer opportunities to do that in virtual The opportunities, as I said, we have to create them. They have to be more formal to some degree because we're not just casually hanging out with people in the office, in the hallway, in the coffee room. So I think all those things have created quite a bit of pressure around that whole issue of getting noticed, getting recognized. The people who are most eager to do that and most skilled have a better chance at it. So that's why we all have to take that seriously and try to work with it. And as I listen to you, I'm realizing when women don't have access to those relational moments, it's often those kind of informal moments that grease the wheels for us and that make it a little bit easier to come forward. And when we don't even have that, it must, it just feels so much more clinical, I think, and so much more forced. What have you seen or what have you been advising that the people that you're working with works well to share your strengths in this more stilted environment where we lack some of those moments of informal connection? I think it's really important to be very proactive in continuing to build and deepen the relationships we have because women tend to, you know, it's a generalization, but women tend to be more comfortable when they have a relationship established. And that's one of women's great strengths is their skill in building relationships. And that gets tested in this environment. So I think we have to be more proactive about, you know, whether it's picking up the phone, whether it's texting somebody, hey, congratulations, I saw that you got mentioned here. Just those kinds of things that we can do to keep relationships active and to keep them growing and to initiate relationships oh, I really was fascinated by that point you made in that virtual meeting we were part of. Do you have 15 minutes? Could we get on phone or do a quick Zoom? I think phone is good because we're all a little Zoomed out, if I'm using the word Zoom to cover the whole category of those kinds of in-person video encounters. But, you know, do you have 15 minutes? I'd love to 
further explore that with you. That was somebody new, not some generic, oh, I'd like to get to know you. But, you know, that point was interesting. I want to hear a little more about it. So building relationships, staying active with that and recognizing that really that can be not a very time consuming activity when we're in a virtual environment, because it doesn't require driving halfway across town to go to some kind of networking event. It's just a quick encounter. So keeping really active there is very important for women. Plus, you don't have to stand awkwardly against the wall waiting for someone to talk to you. Like you actually know who you're going to talk to, right? That's my social anxiety. Yeah. I agree, Rachel. You don't have to risk going back to that awkward, Willie asked me to dance moment in junior high. Oh my God. I was just thinking the same thing. I was literally flashing back to my middle school dances, which were all the more complicated because, you know, I was gay basically. And so I was like, not only why am I here, you know, period, but yeah, I was completely there with you. I also want to add, I think Zoom has now entered the lexicon as emblematic of all virtual, just the way like Kleenex, Vaseline, Tupperware. Like I feel like Zoom has entered that lexicon. So I want to confirm that. Agreed. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's extremely helpful. I also think for a lot of women, there has to be a shift as they become more senior to viewing that kind of investment in their time of building those relationships as central to their work, not ancillary to it, or not something that you get to do once you've finished your to-do list. That has to be part of it. I wonder if you kind of see that transition needing to be made for some women. Definitely. And you know, this is sort of the intersection of perfectionism and putting your job before your career. Oh, I've just got to concentrate on the doing a good job on the job I have. I wish I had time for those kind of extracurricular activities, such as making a 10-minute phone call that might have impact down the line. Really, I think just putting it in your to-do list, if you have one, I'm a big to-do list person, but making sure that 20% of what's on your to-do list represents relationship building, represents strategy for the future, if that's how you're thinking of it, or just you know building those kinds of relationships. That's really important. That feeds us, that gives us strength, that gives us visibility. In my experience over these 30 years, one thing I've seen is that Successful careers tend to be built on three legs. There's expertise, of course, you need to do your job well. There's visibility and there are connections. And women tend to over-invest in the expertise part and under-invest in visibility and connections. And what a fantastic job we could do with our relationship building skills if we recognized building connections as part of our job. I could not agree with you more. And that reminds me of one of my favorite parts of your book, which I talk about all the time. You talk about how that there are some women who look at those who network effectively or those who, quote unquote, self-promote effectively. And they say, I don't want to be like them. They're gross. And they use that kind of like extreme version of the skill to sort of excuse their own distancing from it to kind of disqualify themselves. Like, I don't want to be gross, so I'm just not going to do it. It's a kind of all or nothing thinking. So I'm wondering, what do you have to say to those folks? First of all, look at somebody who's good at it, who you don't think is gross, because there are plenty of those people out there. But the important thing is it's not an either or. It's not an either you're the most obnoxious person in the organization who's constantly talking yourself up or you just sit back hoping someone someday notices the fact that you've been working yourself to the bone and doing an excellent job. 
There's a huge range in between that. And what's important is to find a way that's comfortable for you. People, well, it's, it's about the team. It's not about me. It's about both. You know, you can say things like, our team did a fantastic job on this. We met this objective, whatever. The client said this. My contribution was. That is not obnoxious. That is not all about me. That's just reflecting the truth. So treating what you do as information that could be useful to other people and that is part of the truth of how things get done, I think is a better way to frame it in your mind. And, you know, yeah, some people are obnoxious self-promoters. So what? That's not the only way it gets done. So Totally. That's right. Yeah, there are some people who chew really loudly when they eat certain foods. Doesn't mean we shouldn't eat. <laughs> I don't know where that just came from, Sally. I apologize. That was probably a really random I'm going to rip it off because it's very good. <laughs> all right. Maybe it, wasn't, maybe it wasn't that bad. Okay. Gosh, my brain is just exploding with all the things that I want to ask you as I listen to you. But all right. So let's see. When you think about executive presence... I'm kind of curious because it's one of those things that women are now turning to as really important and they're often getting that feedback, as I'm sure you know, which can sometimes be questionable and rooted in bias. But when you turn to helping women develop authority and presence, what are some of the pieces of advice or components of presence and authority that you like to kind of put out there to women as useful to aspire to? I love this question. First of all, it's really important. It's important to have a strong and authoritative presence that's authoritative and warm. You can balance them. People often, again, an either or, well, I don't want to be that kind of person. I'm a warm human being. You can be both. I think with a lot of the executive presence training, it's very cosmetic. It's focused on, you know, a firm handshake and where to pitch your voice and what to wear and shoulder pads. Maybe we'll bring those back for the authoritative presence. Shoulder pads, very important for executive presence. Very important. (laughs) So it's very cosmetic. But, you know, really people, and I've witnessed this and I've certainly seen a lot of science around it. The people who have the strongest presence are basically the people who are most present. That's what does it, is being present. People can tell if you are fully there for them, and they read that as a strong presence. Try training your dog if you're distracted. Try riding a horse, trying to get a baby to stop crying if you're distracted. It doesn't work. And if a dog and a horse and a baby can tell whether you're distracted, whether you're not present, then you know that another adult human being can. So there is absolutely no way of demonstrating a strong presence if you are not present. Therefore, the way I come at it is minimizing distraction. That is trying to do two things at once, obviously, any kind of multitasking always undermines your ability to be present, and therefore your presence. Radar, letting your radar distract you. Oh, what is that person over there in the back corner thinking? They look distracted. Am I not being interesting? So this sort of radar, which can be a very strong asset for women, noticing, reading the rooms, 
having this broad spectrum notice, that radar, if it's not disciplined, can undermine our ability to be present. And rumination, which is, I think, one of the really important habits that we talk about in How Women Rise, definitely undermines your ability to be present. When you're going back over what just happened, why did I say that? Maybe I should have said it differently. Does that person think I'm a jerk? All those kinds of internal conversations and internal noticings, along with trying to do two things at once, they have a strong impact on our ability to be fully present. So I think that's a less cosmetic, it's a more holistic, it's a really strong approach to building a strong presence. And when any of us think about somebody who we've had an encounter with, who feels very vivid and very strong to us, that's one of the characteristics. It's always they're, they're really there, they're really focused. No way to have a strong presence if we're distracted. I love this. This is really genius. And, and what I think about when I think about you sharing the word presence is I also think about vulnerability and authenticity. That's where I go. And I think about what really makes somebody show up for me is something about themselves that isn't, I don't know what the word is, but that's not performed. And I guess part of where I go too is what is it like for people from underrepresented groups whose present qualities have maybe been discriminated against or have been subject to bias. And I think, for example, of Black women in the United States whose, let's say, presence may strike some as aggressive, overly assertive. When I say some, I mean people who are not in that group, particularly white people in the United States. And so how do you advise people in underrepresented groups, particularly women, to navigate that? Because I think it's really tricky, and obviously not all women are, we're not all one way. Yeah, it can be very tricky. And I get that question so often, you know, well, I don't want to come off as an angry black woman. I have had that question all around the world because of the sensitivity and fear that is sometimes aroused in white people who are inexperienced being around black people. There's a concern not to activate that. And I think that the important thing there is to not focus so much on what that other person's reaction may be, because that is about them. We cannot manage what lies outside of our control. And what someone else's reaction to us is, is not within our control. We can make sure we are showing up as a professional. And I think this is one thing that's really important. We want to be able to balance authenticity with being a professional. And I agree with you, Rachel, that part of full presence is being in touch with your own vulnerability and not trying to pretend you're something you're not. Because if you're pretending you're something you're not, that is the perfect human being, then you're innately distracted. But I think we can get overly pushed sometimes to be our authentic self and demonstrate that in a way that can undermine our ability to be professional. So I think that's the key is think about balancing your own authenticity with what is professional behavior here. And then you have to let go to some degree of your concern with what other people might think. 
what I've learned and what I've seen is that other people can change their mind. So someone can be destabilized because, oh, I haven't been in a situation with an African-American strongly expressing a point of view. I've been pretty sheltered in my life. I feel kind of uptight about that, a little scared. Person with some exposure is going to move past that. I had an experience I often share early in my career when I was still working in corporate communications. I had said something in a meeting. I'd shared an idea. I was the most junior person. I was the only woman. And my boss's boss came up behind me and he said, well, I see you're not afraid of saying what you think. He was so scathing. You know what I said? I said, no, I'm not. I didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. Did I offend you? I wasn't defensive. I didn't say I have a perfect right to. I just said, no, I'm not. Then I went away from that. And I thought, well, I'm toast here. This is it. It's over. I'm not long for this job. Nothing happened. About a month later, I overheard him saying, you know what I like about Sally? She's not afraid to speak her mind. He got used to me. And I think we need to consider that a little more when we're worried about upsetting someone or offending someone, that if we're clear about what we're doing, if we're not reacting emotionally, let them get used to us. So let's wrap this up with a related question, which is, how does the system begin to, quote unquote, get used to a diversity of people? I'll put this in a bit more specific terms, right? We know it's critical for women to become conscious and more aware of our limiting habits. And I know you know, and I know you acknowledge that it's often the systems in which women work that limit our advancement, not us, but the system. And we talk a lot about that on this podcast. So what are some ways organizations can, if not modify their culture to become more flexible than become partners with women and redefine what success can look like or what we reward. How do you see systems changing to be, I guess, more spacious with what we reward and who we decide deserves to advance? I see systems moving toward this slowly. It's been almost 35 years that I've been active in this space. And I am often astonished by the amount of change I see. And I know a lot of people wouldn't share that, but I don't think they've been looking at this quite as long or quite as close. That said, in answer to your specific question, in my experience, organizations begin to change when there's a larger percentage of women in positions of influence and authority. That's not saying all women are going to be supportive of other women. That's just not how human nature works. But in general, that helps organizations change. So as individuals, what we can do to lead to greater change is, I believe, number one, work on ourselves so that we are as powerful, as clear as real and as authentic as we can be, and do that in solidarity with other women. Also, be as active as possible in enlisting men as allies and not writing someone off because they once said something that was sort of clueless or whatever. This is not a revolution of purity. This is a revolution of incremental and powerful and essential and important change. 
So those are the things that I think. Look at ourselves. What can we do to be better and more effective leaders at whatever level we're at? Do it in solidarity. And I use that word with great intention. And then enlist the allies. Be very proactive. And don't be a purist about it. Sally Helgeson is the co-author with Marshall Goldsmith of How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. Please get this book. It will help you in so many different aspects of your career. And Sally, I just want to say thank you for sticking with women's leadership, even when it wasn't so sexy, and for being a pioneer, for having the foresight to invest in this area. I definitely feel like I get to stand on your shoulders. I'm grateful for everything that you've done and extremely honored that you were with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I really enjoyed this. Looking Up, a Unity podcast has been brought to you by PayPal, developed in partnership with Rachel Simmons and produced by Wheelhouse Media. Special thanks to Jocelyn for her song, Speak Up.